Today's reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and it reads, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do the same, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. Well, storehouse, you may be seated. Welcome, and good afternoon. Uh, so like Elsie uh, just finished reading, we're going to be finishing off chapter 4 in our time in the first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Tony Garcia. I, I serve as one of the uh, pastoral residents here at Storehouse McAllen. Once again, it is a privilege and an honor to be here. About a week ago, I preached, right, and I was not anticipating to preach again this Sunday. So, uh, you know, Pleasant surprise, but again, nonetheless, it's an honor and a privilege to be here with y'all sharing God's word as we continue in our time in, uh, in this letter. Uh, if you are new to here to Storehouse, welcome. Thank you for being here with us. We definitely appreciate your time. Uh, we have some Bibles there lined up in the pews at each end. That is our gift to y'all. If you have one, go ahead and still take it. If you know somebody who may need it and benefit from God's word. Uh, along with that, we also have some connect cards. If you'd like to connect with us, we'd love to grab a coffee or lunch and just uh, get to know you better and answer any questions you may have pertaining to Storehouse. Uh, so with all that being said, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the passage one last time and initiate us in prayer, and then we'll jump right into it. Uh, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we've instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for this afternoon. We thank you for the privilege, the honor, and the grace that it is to be here before you, Lord, uh, worshiping together as your people and being under your word, Lord, in which it is that you have left us and you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who saved us and that whose life, death, and resurrection has sealed us in him. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, whom you've blessed us with, who is our helper and our comforter in our times and need until we await your return. We thank you for everybody who's able to be here this afternoon, Lord. We pray that your spirit be present and among us, working in our minds and in our hearts, bringing a greater understanding and knowledge of who you are. May we leave this afternoon not the same, but changed and more like Christ. Humble us, quiet our souls and our minds, that we may listen to you. We thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so let's just jump right into it. So just to give some context, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we've been going through the letter of, the, the first letter of the Thessalonians. And throughout these first three chapters, we've been seeing Paul encourage these brothers, right, who were in uh, Thessalonica and who he had gone and ministered. And obviously there's more context on that in Acts chapter 17. And so basically in these first three chapters, Paul is letting and expressing this church of believers, let them know how much he misses them and how much he loves them, along with encouraging them of the evidence and the work that Christ has been doing in them despite their circumstances and despite where they may find themselves in uh, among that time of age and as well in their society. Again, this church was composed of uh, Jews and Gentiles as well who had a, uh, a Roman Greco b- background. However, in chapter 4, we see Paul switch his direction from encouraging them and just thanking God for them and letting them know everything that God has been doing and how that's been evident in their life to now instructing them. And yes, uh, last week we started off chapter 4. Um, and basically, Paul now starts to instruct them on the manner of how they ought to continue to live. Again, this is not a correction as much as it is a reminder and an encouragement to continue uh, in how they ought to be living in Christ, which is holy and pleasing to God, which is tied to their sanctification. And so in this case, last week we learned about what it looked like for God's will to be our sanctification in our sexuality, in our sexual purity. Now, Paul is transitioning from that in verses 9 and 12, to talk about what it looks like to live a holy life pleasing to God in the manner of brotherly love and an orderly life that is lived out. We'll be discussing the last two of chapter 12, and we'll be closing it off. And, uh, and so, yeah. So when Paul brings up some of these matters, right? So we'll start off in, in verse 9, and in where he says, Now concerning brotherly love, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. When Paul is bringing up these instructions, right, he says, now concerning this, meaning now he's moving on to a different topic. Uh, Last week was regarding their sexual purity. Now he moves on uh, talking about brotherly love. And these, when he's addressing this, it could be possible that it was one of two things. So we know that basically he sent out Timothy to go check out on them, to go check them out and see how they were doing. And Timothy came back to Paul and reported back to him. It could be one of two things in terms of how Paul or why Paul is answering these questions or addressing these things. One, the, the believers had genuine questions for Paul pertaining to these topics and these subjects. Uh, or two, Timothy saw it that these were areas of the church that could have been addressed to better help establish the church. And so now we see Paul writing and directing his answers directly to these matters. Whatever the case, uh, we are going to see that Paul now moves on to finish the chapter of this letter uh, by addressing what could have been, again, questions pertaining to brotherly love or just reminders and as well to instructing them about what it ought to look like for them to live a life pleasing to God in the area of individual responsibility. So Storehouse, this is our main idea for today. A life pleasing to God is one marked by continual brotherly love and orderly living. Again, a life pleasing to God is one marked by continual brotherly love and orderly living. 
So our first point for today, you know, where we're going to break down verses 9 and 10 is a love for the brothers. And I just finished reading it to you and saying where Paul is like, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught for God to love one another. Our first point in this point is that a, a love for the brothers is rooted in God. It is rooted in God. Paul is answering a question that these believers could have had when it was brought to his attention, and he's letting them know that they have no need, meaning, I don't have to be writing to you about this. I'm still going to write it, but you need me to write to you about it, right? And he's letting them know that you have no need for anyone to tell you how or what this particular matter uh, pertains to in terms of the brotherly love. Paul was so encouraged by the work of God that he had been doing in these Thessalonians that he was like, you need no one to tell you what you, you're doing this already. Why? Because God himself had taught them, right? He affirms them by letting them know that they don't need anyone, that they themselves have experienced, not only come to the knowledge of it, but have come to experience it and to display it that they were actually taught by God pertaining the love for one another. It says in, uh, back in, um, in, the, in the verse 10, he, he says there, he's like, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So they're doing it. So it's evidence, right, that they have been taught by God. Back in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he goes on to say, And also we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's amazing to know that the reason why Paul affirms them being taught by God is because when they brought the gospel to them, they took it for what it was, the word of God, God speaking to them. They weren't depending on the culture, on society, or even themselves and their understanding to teach them in this area. When they heard the gospel, they took it as that the living God, the creator of the universe, spoke to them regarding this manner. This is important to note because how we view the word of God and the gospel will influence what type of posture we have towards it and whether or not we take it for, for what it really is. It's so easy for us to not take God's word for what it says when it pertains this particular matter of brotherly love and make all sorts of reason as to why it does not mean what it means, or at least not to the extent of what it, that what people say it means. Why? Because we're scared. We're scared of what it could imply to our own comfort, to our own security, that we rationalize with ourselves about saying, well, it, no, it doesn't mean that I'm having to really give my life for my brother, right? That's not what Jesus meant. But to be taught by God in this matter also implies the working of God to carry it out. The reason why we're sometimes so afraid to actually respond to this particular thing in this manner is because we think that this love permeates and, and is produced within ourselves. To actually live a life that is selfless and sacrificial in the manner which God has commanded us is one that is produced in us by God himself. 
Just like we need to depend on the Spirit for our call to holiness pertaining our sexuality, we also need to depend on the Spirit for the call to love one another in this brotherly way. These individuals didn't need anyone to write to them about this because their understanding of this matter was rooted in what God had said and taught them pertaining this. Church, we're not called to be indifferent toward one another. We weren't called to just get along with one another as if we are all just some students in a classroom. No, but we were called to love one another with deep affection the way that Christ loves us. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, and it says this, Love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. And sometimes we get confused. We confuse our love for one another as just, you know, for just kindness, or we, just, or we confuse our kindness for, for love when in reality is not. When we're deeply rooted in God about the love that we ought to have for the brothers, it will produce testimonies from those brothers or that those very brothers in whom you are around, when we love the way God has called us to love, to have, it will produce testimonies from those brothers. Brothers will speak about this. Just the way Paul, when he started off in chapter one, he said, man, your faith is actually known across outside of Thessalonica. So what exactly has God taught us in the matter of brotherly love? Does it mean, hey, just make sure that you guys don't fight with one another, make sure you don't argue with one another, make sure, that, uh, make sure that you guys just know how to get along? Is that what God has taught us? Is that what it means to love one another in Christ? To give ourselves to one another in a way that speaks of God in a glorious manner, that is what it means to be taught by God. It means that our love speaks of God in a glorious manner. That people turn and see us and say, what in the world is that? How is that possible? You can't really love each other that way. Come on, it's okay, guys. We don't all, we don't have to pretend. Like, that these people are so shocked by the fact that it's like, man, that we have no other option but to say Christ. And in order for us to see it this way, we first must take it for what it is, which is a commandment. Some of us see this as an option or something that we can just be as minimally a part of. Which is totally opposite of what Christ told the disciples, which is amazing. Like, it's a total opposite of what Christ told the disciples. In John chapter 15, verse 12 and 13, this is what Jesus says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That is what Christ has called us to do. It's not like, hey, maybe you feel like, you know, interacting, or maybe you feel like maybe, you know, like, no, no, it's a commandment to love one another. It's not an option. Second, we're called to look out for the needs of our fellow brothers. We're called to consider one another in a way that is evident by us meeting each other's actual needs in this life on this earth. God uses his people 
to be a tangible reminder or even presence of God's love, grace, and care for them. Tell me that you guys have not experienced a moment where a brother literally was a tangible reminder or even a presence of God's love and care for you in that moment. Why is it important? Because it, 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 it speaks into our relationship with God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, it says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and that we ought to lay down our lives for, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When it comes to this matter, we're not left to wander, to assume, or seek out others, but rather this is something that God himself has started in his people the moment that they came to a saving faith in them. This is not something that we say, well, you know what, I'm going to try to make, no, no, it's something that God has already, by giving us a new heart, when redeeming us and indwelling us with his spirit, he brought to life a heart of stone to flesh to actually love the brothers in such a way. And after Paul basically finishes praising them in this matter where he says in verse 10, where he says that you, um, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. It's awesome because Paul is basically saying, man, you guys, you guys are excellent. You guys are doing great in this. You have no one need to tell. I don't even need to tell you, but I'm going to tell you either way. Encourage them and doing them well to the point of saying, hey, to love the brothers in a way that is, that is, that is set apart, that is holy, that is pleasing to God also implies to continue to grow in this. That to have a love for the brothers is one that ought to continue to grow. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. In verse 10, the apostle Paul confirms that his, that his comments in verse 9 that they were already living. They were living examples of this very thing that God had taught them. And that they had been showing this love toward all the brethren in Macedonia. However, only because they have been doing this and doing it good does not mean that they aren't to continue to grow in it. Like we learned about sexual purity last week in terms of our sanctification and the will of God and our conformity to Christ. Brothers, there's never a point in time where we can say, okay, Christ has done working in me. We can never outwork the continual work of Christ in us. This work is till the Lord comes back or till the Lord calls us to himself. There is no way around it. So that's why he's letting them know, like, hey, continue to do so more and more. And he says it with urgency. He says, I urge you. He didn't say, hey, if, if you want to, you know, as long as you're doing what you're doing, if you want to, then continue to grow in it. No, 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 no. He says, I urge you, please. There's a, there's a sense of urgency of, of this pressing need for them to know that, hey, don't stop. Don't stop. Don't grow tired of doing good. Don't grow tired of doing good. 
For those of you who are married, tell me, have you reached the ability to no longer grow your spouse, in the, uh, to no longer grow in your love for your spouse? And if you say yes, good luck after this service. Uh, and for those of you who aren't married, the same thing applies to you. Tell me that you can perfectly love a person for every minute and every day of every moment of your life that no longer requires you to grow in it. Does not happen. We are needing to continue to grow in this because to, to, to grow in the brotherly love speaks to our relationship with God. It speaks to, to what God has called us to here on earth until he comes back. And we're called to excel in it still more. It is literally to abound more in this. This, is, this ought to increase. It ought to be more. Just the way like you, you can see things stack up or continue to, to, to abound, that is what our love for one another ought to look like. And that is the love that Paul is telling them. It's like, hey, Awesome, Macedonia, now go on, continue. You never know what the surrounding cities may be. Continue, do not grow tired of doing good. It says, no matter how much we love, that due to the nature of love and the difficulties with loving, there is always room for growth in our capacity to love in both quantity and quality. Look at what Paul tells them in chapter 3. In verse 12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another for all as we do for you. For one another and for all. And, and, and I love it because he, he goes on to point it back. He says, May the Lord make you increase. Meaning this is a work of the Spirit in us. There is an importance to this because this is the part of our sanctification that we know how to love one another in a way that sets us apart from the world. Some of us are fine with just making sure that the person next to us at least knows that we don't hate them. Someone's like, as long as they know that I don't hate them, right? But the, the truth is, like, well, do they even know that you even, do they, but do they know that you love them, right? And more dangerously, we can be deceived we can be deceived into believing that we are growing in the love for the brothers by just displaying it within our select group of people in whom we do it with. And this verse shows the extent of love that these brothers had. Love is to be extended to all the brethren, not just to a few in whom we might have a special relationship with, which is good. I'm not, I'm not saying that we are called to have these intimate, in-depth relationships with every single person in this church, but what I am saying is that we are, ought to love one another, that we ought to look beside one another and say, I know you. And that it should not be limited. And the only time that this is limited, it is by the opportunities in which is afforded to us to express it, not limited by our preferred selection. Church, I encourage us by the mercies of God for us to grow and to excel in this matter. It does as well. For it will only lead us to a greater love for God and a greater display of our love for one another. Let us not withhold the grace that we may bring onto the lives of our brothers by refusing to grow more and more in this matter. Let us not withhold the grace that we may bring to our brothers by growing in this matter of loving one another more and more. 
in Romans 12, Romans 12, 10, it says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. We love one another because Christ loved us. The one who saved me has also saved you and by placing us in himself, he has called us to one another. This is what it means to be in the body of Christ. To love Christ is to love his body, and to love his body is to love Christ. Our next point in the fact of what God has called us to live in a life that is pleasing to him is to live in a life of order. If we continue on in our verses 11 and 12, it goes on to say this. And to aspire, after he says to do this more and more, he goes on to say, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we have instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. While there's a change of emphasis here in Paul's uh, letter, we have in these next two verses is actually a further application of the responsibility for us to grow in brotherly love. How? By walking in a biblical and orderly fashion when it comes to our individual lives. Hard work and individual accountability to responsibility to responsibly care for one's own life and needs are not unrelated to the subject of Christian love. I'm going to repeat that one last time. Hard work and individual accountability to responsibly care for one's own life and needs are not unrelated to the subject of Christian love. Paul is needing to address this basic responsibility that every Christian has for their own life, and that is to care for it when they have all the ability to do so. Some believers in this time, right, that Paul, the reason why Paul's addressing this is because some believers were beginning to disregard or even take advantage of being cared for by the church to even potentially involving themselves in matters of people where they did not need to be or they had no business having knowledge of, which ultimately could have been causing a burden and a disruption to the state of the church or of the community of both believers and non-believers. So the first thing that Paul wants to exhort uh, and instruct them in is to peaceful living. In verse 11, he says this, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Here Paul uses the term aspire, which gives us reason to believe that he wanted them to be ambitious and eager to walk in this way. The word translated quiet in this, right? Like if, if we're called to aspire to live a quiet life or live quietly, what does it mean for a life to be quiet? Well, in the word here, the quiet is translated in the sense of restfulness rather than quiet as opposed to talkativeness. So this has nothing to do with like, hey, don't talk to anybody, right? Because it'd be so easy to be, oh, live a quiet life, meaning, hey, let nobody know that you exist, right? No, that's not, what, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is using this word, 
which in the Greek is translated to a sense of restfulness. During this time, the Thessalonians were under hot water. Given that there was an uproar happening or that happened in the city when Paul and, and the others had come to preach the gospel to them. Obviously, there were some Jews who had got really upset. Again, the context of this is in Acts uh, 17, and, and they had to leave the city, right? And all of that, they stirred up a bunch of, there was a bunch of issues in the city happening because of the gospel coming. And in this case, Paul knew that they were under hot water and that there was much hostility still present after that, that he was wanting to let them know that, hey, if you don't need to be disrupting things, don't disrupt things. And, and then the crazy part was that they were creating disruption among themselves that was then ultimately bleeding into the, their surrounding community. Paul wanted these believers not to bring unnecessary attention to themselves by, by again, potentially, in, in which could potentially bring them harm or cause harm to the other brothers uh, by, you know, by their lack of living a quiet life. But again, if quiet does not, you know, does not imply talkativeness, but restfulness, what does that look like? So in this case, to live a life that is restful, uh, a life that is uh, settled and not disturbed, uh, some of the things that could have been causing this unsettledness in some of these brothers could have been, you know, political, cultural, or social positioning that they might have found themselves in. Uh, could have been complaints about the conditions in which they were living in. Uh, it could have been everything from expecting, uh, even having the expectation that others were going to provide for them, to even being consumed by the, by the coming of the Lord. All these things were making some of these believers unsettled, disturbed, and restless. Whatever the case, Paul is wanting these believers to ensure, is, is wanting these believers to ensure that they are to strive to live a life that is not unsettled by these matters. For us, right, and I, and I, and I mentioned here specifically because like, I don't, think I, I don't think we have this problem in our church. However, it can be that there can be some times where there are certain things that can cause a brother or sister to be so unsettled that their restless and constant uh, pursuit of these things and displaying of them can become harmful, harmful and even burdensome to the body. Just imagine, I'm gonna give you an example here. It's like, well, Tony, what does that look like, right? Well, imagine a brother or sister who is constantly going around and talking about why we need to heed to their specific political ideology in order for the church to prosper. Or constantly coming to you and constantly complaining to you as to why they have not found work just to find out that they tell you that they haven't actually been applying. Or a person who's constantly asserting themselves into your life, into your matters, when you have not asked for it, and tells you, hey, you really need to change these things. That is these, that's a type of individual that is somebody who's restless, who's unsettled or disturbed by the things that are going on around them that they go and they literally go on and display it onto others or bring this burden upon others unnecessarily. The truth of the matter is that a person who is constantly on the move is frequently a bother to other people as well as sometimes and somewhat distracted in his or her own walk with God. Paul was telling the Thessalonians to be less frantic, not less uh, exuberant. 
when we are more focused on what God has called us to while growing in our walk with him is what then leads us to live a less frantic life, being quiet, settled, and undisturbed. And it speaks a lot to the, to the, to the state of this individual, this type of brother. Jesus says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and lonely at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ has called us to constantly rest in him in all the matters pertaining to our life. Social, political, cultural, personal, every single thing we ought to find rest. A life in Christ is not one of, disorderly, of, a, of a disordered and a very uh, unsettled soul. It is one that has been quieted by the presence of the Spirit through the understanding of who Christ is for us. Church, is your soul weighted and burdened by the matters of the world in a way that comes from a deep intimacy with the Lord, or is it coming from a mere deflection of not realizing that you actually have no intimacy with the Lord? Christians who strive to be at peace with themselves and God will be a source of peace for the brethren. Such, quiet, such quietude leads to a practical demonstration of our love for others. We can't be a peace for somebody else who truly needs it in that moment unless we ourselves find ourselves in peace with the Lord. There is no need for us to be causing unnecessary chaos or disruption or unsettledness among the brethren. And that's what some of these brothers were doing. That's why Paul's addressing it. He's like, hey, make it, your, no, like you need to aspire to live this type of way, a quiet life, a settled life, a peaceful life, a restful one. As you imagine, um, this leads to the second thing in which he addresses in that same verse, which is that this matter also leads to what, where he says to mind your own affairs, right? In short terms, to mind your own business. As you would imagine, a person who is constantly on the move and unsettled about all these things will, in fact, find themselves worrying about everybody else's business and what they're doing rather than their own lives and what they should be doing. So he's not just saying to live this life, because guys, there's, there's consequences for when somebody does not live a quiet life, when, when we don't live a quiet life. It will then bleed into others, and we will bleed into their stuff rather than our own stuff. Paul gives a solution, though, to this, uh, you know, not living a quiet life uh, by saying that they need to tend to their own life and affairs, which, of course, would involve getting one's spiritual life in order. You see, church, in today's era, we have basic and even in-depth information about one another at the tip of our fingers through social media. Think about it. It is easy to snoop and spy on others digitally without anyone's knowledge. It is so easy for minutes to turn into hours as you're attempting to keep up with the Kardashians. <laughs> Maybe even the Kardashians of the church, 
right? And I use that example because it, you know, it, was, it was a good one, right? Everybody knows that. I'm not saying you know, I watched that. I'm just saying it was a reference, okay? Uh, because it's true, right? We keep up with people's lives and what they're doing and what their affairs just to distract us from the despair that our own lives are actually in. But what happens to your own business as you're feeling the pull to be constantly connected to others' digital lives is that you lose sight of your own. Paul wanted these individuals to know that in order to engrace and in genuine and pure motives be concerned with other brothers and their matters, do not come at the expense of their own walk in relationship with Jesus. Because there will be moments where we have to address certain matters that we've come to knowledge when it comes to one another. But we are not to be consumed by it at the moment because we're so, di- we're so, wanting to, uh, we're so fixated on getting distracted from our own lives that we go on and just consume ourselves with the others. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, you hypocrite, when he gives the parable, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your own brother's eye. If you're truly called, if God truly has placed in your heart to go and bring a, a matter up to, to one of your brothers, it's going to come out of true conviction and out of true uh, living in line with God. Not, it's not going to come at the expense of your own walk. And so when our first priority is taking care of our own lives, not in a selfish or a self-centered way, but in a truly biblical way, we are less likely to become nosy people who go around bashing others in the name of loving confrontation. And lastly, Paul exhorts and instructs these brothers to walk with their own ha- to work with their own hands as a manner of living in an orderly life that is pleasing to God and loving to the brothers. And that is in verse 12 and it says and to work with your own hands as we have instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Paul here addresses directly the responsibility that each individual believer has when dealing with work for their own provision. And even though manual labor was looked, upon, like was looked down upon in this time by the Greeks, Paul was not talking about this type of work. He was talking about what was concerning and addressing the matter of idleness. The emphasis here is working as opposed to not, not willfully working. Paul deals with this problem in more detail in 2 Thessalonians, you know, and we'll be going through that book uh, in a couple of months, so we'll, we'll see a little bit more about that. And uh, he does it so evidently because he already had addressed it, and now he's having to bring it up again to these brothers about letting them know, hey, Guess what? This is, not, uh, this is not the way you're supposed to be living and loving the brothers. Uh, and, he, and he defines this refusal of work as unruly and undisciplined. <sighs> Sorry, I was like, man, I'm like, I need to catch my breath. Okay. <laughs> as Christians, sometimes we have this perception that everyone who does not have their needs met is a victim of the system or a victim of their circumstances. And although, though, and although some of these situations may actually exist, some don't and some aren't. And yet, refuse to get out of those situations because they want to continue 
to burden the people to continue to meet their need when they don't need to. That's what was happening with some of these brothers. Church, our work isn't something that we ought to look at as separate or independent from who we are and what we're called to. I know I have sometimes looked at my work as a mere, as a separation of uh, uh, what's called, uh, I put here, as sacred and secular. But it's not. For the believer, his work is sacred. And sometimes these brothers were, were approaching this because he said, no, there is no need for me to concern myself with this because the Lord is coming. Why should I be working? No, while everybody, all the other brothers are working, right, and they're trying to meet their needs, he's like, no. And then there's these brothers over here who's like, no, 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 we, we have to consider, we have to concern ourselves with the coming of the Lord, and, and you know what, and we'll depend on the brothers because you guys have the jobs, as if they themselves weren't able to actually work. Remember that Jesus himself also worked. That he literally worked that throughout the first 30 years, whenever he did become able to work, he was working. And it wasn't until he finally started his earthly ministry here within those three years. And obviously there was other means of provision, but from those years, Jesus was working. Everybody knows it, right? Jesus was a carpenter. Our labor and how we approach it, handle it, and go about it speaks about what we think of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 says this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. These brothers in thinking that, oh yeah, I'm serving the Lord by consuming myself by when he's coming and not worrying about that, we're actually not serving Christ. And ultimately we're doing a disservice to his people. When we refuse to carry our own load by means of our able labor, we aren't only doing a disservice to the body, but we are dishonoring God. And in doing this, we preach a different gospel. That God is only worthy to be served and worshiped in the context of religion and not in everyday mundane things as if the Lord himself did not make man to tend the garden at the start of creation. And again, the context of this is that these were individuals who were able to work. Don't get me wrong, right? There's going to be people in our context, in our church, where we are called to supply their needs. But we can't do that if everybody says, oh, no, I'm not the one who's supposed to be working, even though, I'm supposed to, even though I am able to. The last portion of this verse states that we may walk properly before outsiders and depend on no one. What does this mean? That those who see us see a pattern or form of life that is becoming and attractive rather than derogatory to those without the faith. That the unbelieving world that is watching should always be, that we should always be concerned about how our lives look to the outside, uh, to the outside of the body of Christ. They cannot see our hearts, y'all. They cannot, they can't see the justifying work of Christ in us through Christ's righteousness in our lives. No, no, what they need to see and want to see is that authenticity, that our lives match our profession. And even though we do this so imperfectly, and there's no one here who's going to do this perfectly, we should not willingly and willfully deny that, that call to live in such a way. There's a difference between us failing truly in pursuing the Lord, and there's others of us 
willfully failing because of lack of pursuing the Lord. That the world is watching. Why do you think the world makes such a spectacle of, of, the, of the prosperity preachers? It's like, oh, these people are supposed to be people who care and love people, but look at these people with mansions and private jets and all this stuff. Why? Because it doesn't match. So yes, we are a testimony and a witness to a watching world in our everyday context, which is your work and your labor. People are watching. And the reason why this is so important to our faith and why Paul is addressing it to them, because again, they're in the midst of where like, the people around them already are very, you know, skeptical about them, don't like them, and have already, you know, had a bad experience with them, that the last thing he needs them to do is like, hell yeah, you're, you're bearing a false witness here to, your, to the community who, you, who we could be professing to by way of our work. And why this is important is because in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, uh, to 15, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That we may be lights of the world. Church, our work is both physical and spiritual. We do not take one without the other. Meaning that our work has spiritual implications in the sense of our living for God and public witnessing to the world, while at the same time having physical implications for our well-being on this earth. When he says to depend on no one, he is referring to the basic needs of one's own living. That to us is actually having a need that everybody, if you don't need to depend on somebody to give you your basic shelter, clothing, food, then don't. That you may be able to sustain those. That's what the Lord has called us to in terms of contentment. We learned that in 1 Timothy, right? Paul goes on to say, as long as we have these things, we are good. Don't place that upon another brother when it is your responsibility and you have all capacity and ability to do it if the unsaved have to work and pay their bills are we any different but rather we see work not as a curse or something as to be avoided but work as a blessing and a gift that it really is because when it is within our control to not depend on anyone in this matter, we honor God while loving and serving those around us, including our brothers. And how do we do this? Well, we do this by one, when we do not depend on anyone on these basic things, we are providing for our needs and our family needs. We do this by keeping us from being a burden to others unnecessarily. Three, we do this by giving to those who have need within the guidelines or within the actual premises of needs. We withhold people who actually have needs when we ourselves refuse to actually work to provide them. And three, and four, we do this by being productive in society because we live in this world. Christ has not called us out of this world in the sense of where the fact that we live 
away and apart from the unbeliever. No, we are called to be in this world and to be a testimony and a witness to the world, and we do that with our work. So to conclude, we are called to live a life that is holy, meaning a life set apart for the glory of God, one that speaks of his goodness, mercy, and love. His will for us is our sanctification and us becoming more like Christ in all the areas of our lives, including, and most importantly, our love for one another, all the while displaying what it looks like to live as a faithful steward of God's creative goodness in our lives. That as ambassadors of Christ, we have the calling of reconciliation to bear witness to the world of God's redeeming love that has been given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We are called to reconcile the world by way of our brotherly love and our orderly living, which speaks to who God is. And brothers, I urge us, I urge us, including myself, because I am guilty as well as this, that we, if we have dismissed, if we have made less of, or even if we've kept bitterness towards a brother or a sister, I ask to turn to that brother and be reconciled. There's a reason why Jesus says, if, if you come into the altar, Leave your gift there if you still have something, if a brother has something against you, if you have something against a brother. It matters to your state. And that in doing so, that we turn back to our Savior and to his very own example of him giving himself up for us on that cross, we love because he loved us to turn back in repentance and to acknowledge before the Lord that we cannot say that we love God if we hate our brother. We cannot, it does not exist. And God is clear of that, that we turn back and confess to the Lord our indifference towards those of the household of God as if God is indifferent about us and his love for us. If God's love for us is not indifferent, then why should we have that type of heart towards his people? to turn back away from even our own partiality towards only involving or concerning ourselves with, the, with those of a selected group and dismissing the rest of God's household. Jesus did not despise a single disciple, nor does he despise a single one of those in whom are his. But rather, he regards them with great love despite what others view, despite what background, despite where they're from, despite of what they've experienced. And he loves them. May in our turning to the Lord, we continue to grow in this loving manner towards one another. And then in doing so, we honor and glorify God. And if you're not a Christian, thank you so much for being here today. For it is not of no purpose, but I must let you know that apart from a saving faith in Christ Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses. There is no way to love in this manner, to live in this manner fully, purely, and truly apart from a new heart in which Christ himself offers to you. We are plagued by tendencies of selfishness. We're, we're plagued by tendencies of, of motives for our own device, for our own wants, that dismisses the people in front of us. 
It is Christ who gives his people a new heart. It is Christ who works in us this love for one another that is truly, truly authentic, pure, and true that reflects his work for us on that cross. Christ didn't just say, there is no greater love than this that one laid down his own life for his friend. Rather, he did it. And he offers you the free gift of salvation, the free gift of grace, and that he promises us that in him, in faith in him, in dependence in him, that he will work in us this work of loving one another and laboring in a manner that honors and glorifies God while being a, uh, uh, while being a while impacting and benefiting the rest of society and the world around us. So with that being said, the Lord says that if you believe and you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and turn from your sin to him in faith, that you will be saved. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you so much. Thank you for your word. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you continue to work in us this good work. That as the Apostle Paul prayed for these Thessalonians, by saying that you, Lord, may continue to make in us, to make in us abound more and more in love. We ask that you do that in us, Holy Spirit. That we ask that we may submit ourselves to your word and to your spirit to be more like Christ, to reflect to a watching world what it looks like to be in this grace and in this mercy that has been offered and extended to us by you, Christ. For you did not love by word, but by deed. Every word of yours was indeed. And we thank you for that. We ask that, Lord, as well, and when it comes to the matter of work, that we may not burden one another unnecessarily with, with these matters, that you yourself have given us responsibility we ask, Lord, that if we do have needs, that we may be able to see them and that we may be able to meet them and understanding that we can't truly meet the needs that you have called us to meet with your people unless we ourselves, Lord, respond to the obedience of meeting those needs by our own work. We thank you, God, for your word. We ask that you continue to make storehouse in this church and this group of believers, Lord, a testimony and a witness to the, to the surrounding cities and to everybody in whom we come in contact with, Lord. We thank you for your grace. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.